I've really been trying to get my footing here because what happens is you, you try to make bigger goals. You're like, I'm going to buy a yacht. I'm going to buy a bigger house. I'm going to buy a jet. But you know what? It doesn't fulfill you. So I like, a, I like a high cash position because it gives you the courage and the confidence to make the right decisions. And I learned that in 2008. And it's a deep, deep scar uh, that many people listening to this will know exactly what I'm talking about. And when I had that blow up in 2008 where I lost a lot of real estate and you know was undercapitalized, I learned quickly that it's always important to have a strong cash position. So I made the sacrifice. I sucked it up. I lived like a poor person. Even when I was a millionaire, I was driving a 2003 Nissan Altima in 2013. And uh, my wife was driving a 2006 Tacoma. And she was wearing an $800 ring at the time because we sold the ring in 2008 to pay, pay off our cars. So we sacrificed. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. All righty, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 165. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Anything new? No, just getting ready for the holidays here. And uh, what about you? Yeah, so I looked up thinking about the holidays here. Just let's see, how many days until Christmas? Four days, right? From the time that this will be launched. I looked up the average cost, average cost of American holiday spending. And we haven't talked about this before. So what do you think? This is on Investopedia. What do you think the average American consumer spends on holiday gifts and other holiday expenses a year? This is for a family of four, just an individual. I don't know. Let me see if I can see. Because my answer would change. I'd say it'd be like fifteen hundred to two thousand for a family of four, and if it was just an individual, probably like what six fifty, seven hundred, eight eight hundred bucks, something like that. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're right. You're right there. It says nearly every year since two thousand nine, American consumer spending on holiday gifts and other holiday expenses has increased over the previous year. For twenty twenty, Americans on average expect to spend nine hundred and ninety eight dollars on gifts holiday items, and other expenses during the holiday season. So it's about 500 bucks on gifts, a couple hundred dollars more on non-gifts, like decorations and stuff, and then and then gifts for yourself, no, other non-gift purchases for yourself or your family. So about $1,000 a year. You spend more or less than that. Oh, indeed. I spend a little more than that, especially with two kids. But that, that's what I was asking, a family of four <laughs> or not. You do? I kind of thought you'd do less. Well, I mean, if you count that, if you, so here's the deal. Like, we, we don't we do not do big gifts for our, you know, immediate family. And we get a couple little things, like, you know, something educational, some little toy, and then, you know, something that, that they may have wanted or whatever. We tend to spend the money on experiences. So, you know, this year's no different in, in terms of holiday spending. We've been trying to be, you know, pretty... Not not go crazy with it, and then you know spend that spend the money on on the experiences. So if I if I add in that and what that all costs and stuff, then it's a little bit over. But yeah, and the gifts were were definitely under. I mean, I, I did spoil my wife a little bit this year, if you want to call it that, or we spoiled each other, whatever. But I basically just told her Black Friday didn't happen for nothing, right? So go ahead, have at it, find all the things that you would want, put it in a shopping cart and give me the shopping cart. And then I'll go through it and decide like, yeah, I like that one too. Or that one's a little bit more than I want to buy right now. So I let her do that. And then, uh, you know, I press buy. So she ended up getting Oh, I got her a bunch of clothes stuff from a couple different places, but so I got her, I got her that, and then a couple, uh, 
surprise things that she doesn't know about yet. But those those were kind of like, I mean, she knew kind of. I mean, obviously, I parred down her list a little bit. But at least it was a fun experience for her to kind of just go through, even though we're not, you know, shopping in stores, but just kind of throw everything in the cart. And then, all right, he's going to surprise me with like whatever's left, you know. <laughs> so all right, all right. that's kind of what we did. What She's about you? Like, yeah. He's like doing the supermarket sweep, just like totally arms out wide, sweeping everything yeah. into the car. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things I'm like, really? She grabbed this? I'm like, that taking that back out. <laughs> <laughs> but she was so happy. I mean, we 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 kind of already opened some of the gifts just because my daughter got into hers a little bit, and and right. uh, so we we I, I told her I was like, I was thinking about you just doing 12 days of Christmas, and having her open one each day, but I finally just folded. I, I'm terrible at like holding gifts. I just like get so excited for them to see them and stuff. So she opened a bunch of her clothes already who is this your daughter well my daughter and my wife wife. okay gotcha yeah Yeah, i think we spend i think we spend well below that i mean it's different for us no kids it's a little bit easier and and probably throughout the year if we really need something or or want something we buy it so we don't always wait for christmas when you're a kid it's different right you want a new bike something it's like christmas or your birthdays when it comes that's about it a little bit different if you are able to afford it throughout the year Mm, totally. You gotta, you gotta get a do a little shopping experiment with your wife. See what happens. Do the do the supermarket sweep through the anthropology. Yeah, just online, man. Just see what she puts in the cart and see what that total is. Or you might get a little <laughs> sticker shock like I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, hope everybody has a good holiday season. And and thanks for tuning in. If you're listening over the holiday, that's some dedicated listening right there. So. If you enjoy the show, if you get something out of it, please leave us a review. It helps us grow the show. We continue to reach new uh, millionaire interviewees and, of course, new guests. And, and I think the show's starting to gain some steam. So just want to read one review we had from AM Carps this week. It says, how am I just finding, how am I just discovering, excuse me, this podcast? As a former journalist, I love the concept of interviewing people. As an investor, I love the idea of learning from others. The guests respond to financial questions as well as share their stories and insight. Definitely a binge-worthy podcast. So thanks to AM Carps for sharing that review. Just as a quick overview from last week, we had Chloe. Her net worth was over 600K. She works as a nurse and has moved around a little bit in order to grow her income. She started at about 60 grand, then moved it up to 120. She's married, no kids, but pregnant as of the time of this record uh, when we recorded the episode. Most of her investments and net worth is held in U.S. stocks, and we really talk about her story, her career journey, and goals. I think they wanted to get to about $1.5 million long-term and about $1 million by the age of 40. So fun interview with Chloe last week. Just quickly, this week we have Daniel. He has a net worth of $10 million, so a little bit higher on the higher end of our millionaire interviewees. He has a broad list of investments and runs a newsletter called Future Money Trends that talks about his investment decisions and and some financial advice. So interesting interview there. If you are interested in multifamily investment syndication opportunities, please reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com and obviously the same contact information if you wish to be on the show. So thanks again for listening. And without any further delay, let's turn into the interview this week with Daniel. Daniel, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Sure. Uh, you know, I'm very focused on passive income and finding those ideas. I share them with my subscribers and I'm excited about it every day because it's exactly what I'm investing in. Uh, essentially, that's what futuremoneytrends.com is. It originally was just my journey on investing and saving money with my wife and I, but now it's become really an investment research letter and because uh, we're constantly looking for income. So that's where uh, that's where I'm at. It's futuremoneytrends.com. It's my focus uh, when it comes to business and pa- my passion. 
And what's your net worth today? Net worth is around $10 million. I like to be a little discreet just because of, uh, you know, there's always the potential for the, the wrong person or the wrong type of people to, to know what your net worth is exactly uh, one day. No, totally. And I'm sure, you know, just given the market that we're in right now, too, it's hard to value everything, right? It might be all over the place. It's a very good point. Um, and I think that's in general with also, with even like the stocks, uh, you're valuing companies that aren't making money and they're going to make money dramatically different in the future. Uh, my company uh, has definitely seen a fall in income. My real estate hasn't seen a fall yet, but that's only because people can't buy houses. So prices haven't had a chance to plunge yet. But you know, you're, you're exactly right. It's a great point. Um, I technically don't know what my net worth is today because if I wanted to sell all my real estate, I probably couldn't. <laughs> so let's get into the, the allocation a little bit. Where, how is it all kind of spread across all the different asset classes? So it's a great question. As we do this interview, uh, if you'd asked me eight weeks ago, it would have been a much different answer. Uh, but right now, my, my, I have it pretty down to the number here. It's 25% is in real estate uh, where I like it. 20% is in cash, cash equivalent of also a, like whole life cash value policies I use as well. So that's a much higher than normal uh, level of cash for me. Usually it's around 10%. Right now it's at 20. Um, I have 30% in, in gold, which uh, that number is usually around 5 to 10%. And it's jumped to 30% in the last uh, eight weeks here. And then 25% is in different business interests. Interesting. So the gold, is that intentional that you jumped up to 35 or 30%? It is because of what the Federal Reserve is doing. Um, it's unprecedented action. They've monetized the bond market. They, they're planning to buy equities in, in the future, more, more than likely ETFs. So the gold is an insurance policy. I don't look at it as an investment. Ideally, as a father of uh, three, living a very good life here in the United States, I'd rather not see the gold go up. Uh, but it, I do use it as a financial insurance vehicle, vehicle at this point. Just in case there's some sort of currency crisis, though I don't foresee a currency crisis uh, because everyone else is in the same boat. So as ugly as it is for the U.S. dollar and, and everything that's going on, it's that way with everybody. And we're still the reserve currency. So I am a believer that the dollar will be around and the dollar will be the king for a while. But no doubt that the uncertainty level here is high. And uh, we definitely could do something that potentially could be a game changer. So that's why I want to have a larger position of gold than normal. Yeah, it's interesting. So you have a 20% roughly in cash. You said you like to keep 10%. Is that because you saw an opportunity potentially coming up that you wanted to, to put more into cash and then wait for that opportunity? Or is it just kind of accumulated to get to that point? So I like a, I like a high cash position because it gives you the courage and the confidence to make the right decisions. And I learned that in 2008, and it's a deep, deep scar uh, that many people listening to this will know exactly what I'm talking about. And when I had that blow up in 2008, where I lost a lot of real estate and you know was undercapitalized, I learned quickly that it's always important to have a strong cash position. So that cash uh, position is is a fairly large number. It actually, even at 10%, you know, it could maintain my lifestyle for about three or four years. So I, I was comfortable with that, but I wanted to raise it up, not necessarily because I wanted more cash, but of course, if you're selling stocks, which I, I sold all my stocks in January, by definition, you're buying cash, you're repositioning to cash. So my hope is to own more stocks in the future uh, and own more investments, And I'm, I'm, but I feel good going into this uh, corona cri coronavirus crisis uh, because I have the cash to make the right decisions and, and, and I certainly will have the confidence to be able to sustain volatility when that time comes. 
I like that confidence tied to cash. And just for our listeners, we're recording this mid-April. So when he talks about having a different portfolio eight weeks ago or so, that's obviously because of this coronavirus. So you mentioned you sold all your stocks in January. Is it because you saw you foresaw all this coming? I would love to say I foresaw all of it. Uh, what happened was I saw what was going on in China. I had met some people uh, who lived, were living in Hong Kong and they had basically told me what was going on. And as soon as I realized that this, the potential was there for it to reach the entire economy, I sold all my stocks. Now, the reason I was more sensitive to uh, pot- this potential is because my business, futuremoneytrends.com, is focused on investments and it's also focused on venture capitalism. So I have a lot of money out in venture capital deals and and me and my subscribers with pre-IPO money or companies that are just about to IPO and go public. So the reason that decision was made to close out all of our normal stock positions, S&P 500 blue chip companies, was because we have a higher risk on these smaller venture capital deals. So that's why we sent out to our subscribers and we did it ourselves. We closed out basically anything we could close out to have a higher cash position just in case the uh, coronavirus came to the United States and caused disruption. Now, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I did not foresee it being this disruptive. I thought it was going to be disruptive to the stock market. I didn't think it was going to grind the economy to a complete halt. Yeah, yeah, pretty wild. So futuremoneytrends.com, you mentioned a couple of times, just tell our listeners and tell us people that might not be familiar with it. What, what is that and, and what do you offer there? It's a free newsletter. Um, it, it initially in 2010 started out as a blog and I was making videos as well as doing the newsletter and talking about basically what I wanted to do with my life and invest and just, you know, just kind of a place where I could share my ideas and what I was doing. And I wasn't wealthy at all at that point. And it was a kind of became like a, a nice little community. And at some point in time, I would say within about three years, it sort of transitioned into a site where I was solely focused on passive finding passive income investments and also looking at venture capital deals. And that was when we got rid of the advertisements. And essentially, it's a free site. doesn't cost anybody anything. And the way it ge- can, that company can generate money is when we finance the venture capital deals. So when we finance the venture capital deals, uh, we're getting warrants, we're getting different things. It's, it kind of gets complicating. I, I, you know, I can't explain the whole thing, but you know, 90% of the site is focused on finding passive income deals, which we get no income from. And the other 10% is fo- finding venture capital deals where we partner with our subscribers, the ones who choose to do it into deals that are, you know, early stage cannabis deals. And coincidentally, about seven or eight months ago, we pretty much pivoted to the mining shares. I, again, I thought mining was going to do well because of the inflationary pressures from the Federal Reserve and central banks, but I had no idea it was going to be this good. Hmm. Really interesting. So I want to jump back to 2008. You, You said that's kind of one thing that led you to having this much in cash Right. What was 2008? You, you mentioned you were also in real estate. Take us yeah. back to, to then. I bought my first house when I was 18 years old in the year 2000. And man, did that curse me because by 2004, I was thought I was a genius. Uh, you know, everything went up 10,000 a month, no matter what, you know, even if you made a mistake. One time I bought a house so fast, I realized when I closed and got the keys, it didn't have a garage. 
And I was like, what the hell? But you know, I was in a booming market. <laughs> and so I sold it for 50,000 more like three months later. Um, so, you know, buying real estate in Southern California at 18 years old in the year 2000, you can imagine what that would, uh, you know, I thought I was pretty smart and I really blew myself up good in 2008. My wife and I never filed bankruptcy, but you know, we spoke to a bankruptcy attorney and I mean, it was bad. And, um, so 2008, 2009, kind of a real depression, pressing years for me emotionally. And, um, when we kind of, my wife was encouraging me to start a blog or, or a video vlog. And that's how this kind of started. I started, um, uh, in 2008, just kind of talking about the foreclosure market and, and what's going on in real estate. And my very first video, because I was out there not only having properties foreclosed on myself, but I was knocking on doors trying to buy foreclosures. It was a real disaster um, for me. But in 2008, in March of 2008, I believe on March 18th, actually my very first YouTube video, I forecast it. I said, because I, and I, again, this was me basing it off of all these stacks of foreclosure notices I had that I was, I was using to buy real estate. I forecasted in that video that Lehman Brothers would collapse AIG, uh, Washington Mutual, Fannie and Freddie, as well as I thought the Dow, which was at 12,000 at the time, would go to about seven or 8,000 by the fall of 2008. Well, six months later, that happened almost like on the T again, luck on that part. But that's what made the YouTube channel just blow up with this huge audience. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to start Future Money Trends. I'm going to pick myself up, dust myself off the ground and start this journey. And, and initially, the journey was never to become wealthy. It was really just to not be poor. I was more of a minimalist in 2010. Hmm. Yeah. How did you get money initially to buy all those? those how, was it single family homes? Initially, in the, from 2000 to 2008, it was creative financing. And as well as uh, just, you know, saving $3,000, you could get an FHA loan. This goes back to, this is literally 20 years ago now. You'd, sure. I could buy a $100,000 condo at 3% or excuse me, at 3% down. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, within three years, the thing sold for 278. So, I mean, I was in, I was in Southern California's real estate market. This was the hottest market. Um, so everything was just going straight up. Uh, now from 2009 to today, I've actually only purchased seller finance deals. I haven't done a conventional deal in 11 years. I haven't even thought of it until now. Wow. And how do you find those? You know, it's, it's, it's as easy as just Googling for them or looking for them on Craigslist. Now, there are certain properties that are going to be more uh, ideal for a seller finance deal, uh, which are going to be anything that's two, three, four units. Now, if you get five units up, they're going to be all day long. Once you get into commercial property, seller financing can be quite common. And then you can always find a realtor in a niche market, uh, like the Austin market. There's a good group out there. I think it's owner financing experts. They can help you. That's all they do is seller financing deals. And then later, uh, and it actually happened when I moved to Texas, I bought a home uh, for to live in, and it had a foundation problem. And I found out the problem was only like $3,000 to fix. So then that's all I bought because I was like, wow, no one can get a loan on a foundation problem. The sellers are distressed. The property is technically distressed and investors don't want to touch them because it's an unknown problem that they think is huge. When I found the cool hack that in Texas, if you buy on the right side of the uh, 35, these properties all have foundation problems and they're like three to $4,000 to fix. But in the meantime, they're perfect for seller financing because no one who needs a bank loan can get one. Hmm. That's interesting. So your real estate portfolio now, you said about 25% of your of your portfolio is real estate. What is that? Single family, multi, mix of both, commercial? 
So uh, this time about nine months ago, it was all single families. And I have been in the process for the last nine months, converting it into commercial and larger residential apartment buildings. And I'm almost there. I actually have uh, one left, one single family left <laughs> in Metro. We'll see if it closes. They've asked for uh, a two-week extension and then another two-week extension. And, you know, normally I'm, I can be a um, little sharky on my negotiations. But when you're right in the middle of the coronavirus, you're just kind of like, sure. Yeah. I mean, because if you go away, there's no one else coming. Right. Right. And, and were all those homes where you were living or you just buy them all over? But I buy them all over. Uh, so that, you know, I'm in California. I have some properties. Uh, that specific property I'm talking about is in uh, Texas, that last single family house. Uh, and then there's properties all over the United States. And eventually I'd like to get an international, but uh, right now the only way I do have international exposure is through international REITs. Uh, but my main focus is on uh, the United States and, and major cities. Gotcha. And how do you, I mean, we, t- we talked to some other people that do the same thing. So I know it's you know common for people to buy out of state and, and hire a property management company, but how do you find them? Is it through broker relationships in the area? Is it when you're there visiting? How do you find the properties? I've always used these. There, there are. There's the Marshall Reddick Network. There's Jason Hartman. There's a couple of organizations. Like, there's a lot of actually them. Those are just the ones I've used. And these are realtors who help uh, kind of these, you know, New York or Californians who want to buy cash flowing real estate, but they've got to go out of state. So these guys are sending these cities or these brokers, you know, dozens and dozens, dozens and of buyers every month. And they tend to treat you a little better because it's almost like being in a union. Like, hey, look, I'm with the the Marshall Reddick Network or I'm with the Jason Hartman Group. And so they connect you. It's kind of turnkey. You get the, the, the properties, mm-hmm. uh, the property manager, the whole thing. And it's always done well for me. And I've also purchased them on my own where you're just, you know, you know an area, especially when I was living in Austin, you know an area well enough where you can, you know, look, uh, go on Craigslist or start looking for properties. I've done all kinds of things to try to get properties. Uh, one of the most successful ways is just finding these bird dogs. They advertise themselves on Craigslist or the keywords to look for is wholesaler. Maybe they don't have the property you want, but just tell them that, hey, keep my keep my email. And um, those guys, man, that's all they do because they, they're doing it right. They're sending out letters to non-owner occupied uh, homes that perhaps are either in foreclosure or look abandoned. And they're finding the distressed sellers and the distressed properties for you. They're, of course, making a nice little cut for themselves, but you are getting the property below market value. So, Daniel, if, if that's such a good deal, and I've wondered this, if it's such a good deal, why don't they just buy it themselves? You know, I think it's because of the volume they're doing it in. And often these uh, bird dogs, these wholesalers, the way they structure the deals, oftentimes and most of the time, they don't actually own the real estate. What they're doing is they're getting a purchase agreement and it's their name and or a signee. And they're just assigning contracts. So they're they're contract flippers. That's what they really are. They're not even real estate flippers. They're contract flippers. That's just their business model. Fair, fair. Okay. So how come you decided to pull away, pull out of the single family space? You know, it was a matter of just organizing my net worth and my wealth and my my financial and brain, my sanity. You know, all these houses, some of them come with two tax, two tax statements. Couple of them had mortgages, some of them didn't. Some of them had HOA, some of them didn't. You know, you got property managers emailing you to make decisions. 
And I was like, man, you know what? I think instead of having, um, you know, a few dozen single family homes and all these obligations, what about just having one big apartment building with a hundred units mm -hmm. or how about I partner up with three friends and let's go buy the building that Costco is running out or, um, you know, um, Chevron. So that's, that's where my main focus is now just owning larger commercial properties with much more stable tenants too. One thing I was looking at, uh, is on the downside. I love my single families, but, um, the commercial tenants, if you're renting to Costco, for example, a good example, they're much less likely to default. You know, obviously things have changed. I could have said if your client yeah, is the totally. cheesecake factory, but now all the cheesecake factories are defaulting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you worry about retail. I mean, Costco is different than, you know, a no-name clothing store, for example. But you worry about retail a little bit even before the corona stuff. Absolutely. And I didn't target certain things. It's funny. I didn't target grocery stores. I should have. Uh, you know, I was targeting like these Fortune 500 companies. Also, um, never actually got to buy one directly. I bought one through a private equity fund. But there are funds also that I purchased some real estate with uh, who the tenants are the IRS and the State Department. So, Daniel, what kind of let me ask you about returns when you're buying each of these. Is there a, a certain return you're looking for? I don't know what your metric is. IRR, cash on cash. Yeah. Right. Whatever. I mean, what metrics are you looking for? For me, I'm always I'm laser focused on cash on cash return. I want at least an 8% yield. Typically, you know, I'll try to get one where the 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 you know the proposal or the deck is showing that it's going to make about a ten to twelve percent, because I know these are usually never happen. So uh, if I get the eight percent, I'm happy. Um, so usually I'm looking for about a ten to twelve percent, expecting to get about an eight percent. And if they over deliver, I'm 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 very happy. You know, I've done some deals recently where we purchased some farmland, and what we did was we bought a lot of farmland, and then we bought the farm equipment, and we're we're leasing out the farmland and leasing out the equipment to the farmers. The farmer has the upside of the commodity, but we have the stable income. Uh, but it's the same thing. I only focus on the income. Every year, these properties have had capital appreciation for the past, you know, ten years. So that's kind of the icing on the cake. That you might pay, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. You're in it a hundred thousand dollars. You're making ten thousand dollars a year from that investment. And the icing on the cake is that that property could potentially. Uh, go up in value, and you know, and it might even been on a million dollar asset where you only used a hundred thousand dollars to control it, and now all of a sudden the million dollars is going up ten percent, and you've made a hundred thousand uh, dollars, so you've doubled your investment on capital appreciation. Which at that point in time, I've I've been in that situation. That is another reason why I sold a lot of these single families. Some of them went up so much, it was like, man, if I sold it, locked in all that capital appreciation. I could then convert it and roll it into more income uh, because I could not raise the rents as fast as the property would go up. And the cash flow would take 100 years to capture all that appreciation. Yeah, it's kind of wild to think about. And, and, and I think sometimes real estate investors lose track of that. So at what point did you realize that, that you were going to capture all that at once? You know, you look at it and... Um, like some of them, let's say you bought them for 300000 and now they're worth, let's say, 500000 And you're making, you're over there making $900 a month or $1,000 a month. And you got you to gotta do the math. They're like, man, if I sold this property, you know, I don't have a calculator. I'm not good at math in my head. But that's a lot of years. That's, and you could just capture that right away. Take that money, roll it into another investment, either through 1031 uh, or if you wanted to do it another way, but there's there's opportunities to take that money and and make more money. The appreciation on a property is not 
really yielding income. The, the property is still on the metrics of when you bought it. Let's say you're in a hot market like Austin is a great example. It might have been a great cash flowing property in 2013. And in 2019, it's still a great cash flowing property. However, the property's doubled. And now it no longer makes sense to have that much money tied up because your yield on actual equity could have gone from 10%, but because of so much appreciation, your yield might be 2% relative to the equity of the property. Daniel, let me ask you, is that something that you look at in terms of the the return on equity in your properties more so than any other metric? So I typically only focus on the income because in 2008, there's one property that I kept and uh, it was a duplex. It went from 120000 to 60000 but the rent went from 1000 1300 And that taught me that it's better to just stay as a landlord and not focus on the capital appreciation too much. However, if they get into a hot market, then I will focus on the equity. And, you know, I'll just look at it. Bottom line, if I put hundred grand in the deal and I'm making 10000 a year, and uh, five years later, I'm making 10000 a year, but I've got 200000 in equity, I mean, that's a no-brainer. You got to sell it and roll that in because I could take the same $200,000 and make $20,000 now. Yeah, totally. So, Daniel, you you let us know that, that you made a lifestyle change and move. What was driving that and how did you kind of decide when to do that and how to do that? So, post-2008, my wife and I live like poor people. And I actually talk about it a lot in the book, Don't, Don't Save for Retirement. Uh, which you guys can read the first chapter and intro at futuremoneytrends.com slash save. And we live like peasants and we were real minimalists, but we were happy. Yeah, but we had a great life. And um, then we moved to Texas in 2014. We left California, moved to Texas, bought a beautiful dream home. And th- that was only 350 grand. Uh, but in Texas, that at that point in time in 2014, we got you a really nice house. And um, we loved it there. We, we, but we moved there specifically to save on taxes because they have no income tax and to buy, get more value uh, to raise our children. As far as, you know, you spend $500,000 in California, you might get a condo, spend 500000 in Texas, and you're, you're living on an acre or two and you got a guest house. At least it was that in the time in 2013 when we were shopping. So that's the initial move to Texas. And then we continue to do well and save. We've always been huge savers since 2008 saving large portion, portions of our income, sometimes as high as 80, 85% of our income. And when we approached 2018, we were looking to move again. And rather than move to a bigger house in Texas or a, you know, you know, maybe get some horse or something, my heart of hearts, my true love and passion was always the ocean. And even though I was in California my whole life, I never lived by the ocean. Most people think of California and they think everybody lives by the beach, but most of us didn't. And um, I just really wanted to go back to California and live by the beach, which my wife was so upset. She loved Texas and she hates California's tax system here. It's just as oppressive as it gets. But at (laughs) this point, I was just like, you know what? I've got it. It's just kind of one of those things. There's wealth and then there's the feeling of wealth. And I was like, I really, if I have to pay the California government to live there, does it change the quality of my life? Uh, is it going to change what I eat for breakfast tomorrow? Is it going to change my trajectory of, of my wealth? No, we had made it, we had saved and done enough to where the lifestyle was not going to change, whether we paid Texas nothing or paid California a large chunk. So that made the decision. And then of course you have these ideas before you move. Should we 
stay in Texas and vacation in California for four months and all these crazy things and move around the country and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, it's like, look, we got three little kids. They don't need to be bouncing around between Nevada and Texas and California. Also, we can save money. In the end, we really started focus on quality of life because we had already made the sacrifices. I want people to know that I would have never made this decision six years ago, five years ago. I did the right thing in, in hindsight. I made the sacrifice. I sucked it up. I lived like a poor person. Even when I was a millionaire, I was driving a 2003 Nissan Altima in 2013, and uh, my wife was driving a 2006 Tacoma. So, and she was wearing an $800 ring at the time because we sold the ring in 2008 to pay pay off our cars. So we sacrificed, and it was just it was just we just really felt that it was time to really focus on just really enjoying the fruits of our labor. Yeah, that's a pretty crazy story. So how did you find your wife that was willing to kind of ride those coattails of the financial success and the down, you know, the downtimes and everything else back to where you are now? I got lucky. I have no idea. We're soulmates, but I mean, I have no idea how she stuck it out because I know she's a very traditional wife. She's a very passionate mother, very passionate wife. And she was the breadwinner winner. She was the, she had the job in 2008. She was a teacher. Uh, meanwhile, I had blown myself up and was like depressed sleeping till two o'clock. You know, she was still working at this school, had our first son in 2009 while I was working at a grocery store because I had basically given up on life. Not that working at grocery stores, you know, life, but I had like given up my entrepreneurial dreams and investment dreams, like screw it. We're in depression. I'm just going to work at a grocery store. Which, by the way, in hindsight, that was a really smart move too. <laughs> that really worked. It would have worked out twelve years later. Uh, but anyway, um, I don't know, man. I got really lucky. My wife is so loving, and she's the one who encouraged me to start Future Money Trends for six months. She told me to do this, and I resisted her. And finally, I did it, and um, I'm so thankful to have her in my life. No, that's awesome. So, Daniel, where do you kind of go from here? It's a good question, and a lot of people listening to this show will experience this, where you where you have these goals and you you achieve them, and then you almost you got almost kind of get into a funk or a depressed state. And this happened from for a few years now, actually, to be honest with you. And um, I I've really been trying to get my footing here because what happens is you you try to make bigger goals. You're like, I'm going to buy a yacht, I'm going to buy a bigger house, I'm going to buy a jet, but you know what? It doesn't fulfill you, and um, that's really what I struggle with for probably the last two years. And then, you know, you go to the, I live, live at the beach now and I'm like, okay, I got this. Now I got the beach. And it's like another, another thing got checked. And it's like, but then it, you just, it's, it was frustrating. And only in the last few months, and it's really with the help of, uh, with Tony Robbins uh, on a personal level is just, I realized that my need of significance and wealth was my whole life. But once I had achieved all these goals, my my most basic human need had switched to contribution. That's really what fulfilled me, really what made me happy. So I'm I'm literally talking to me in a transition right now, just really focusing on on who I can help. My wife and I recently helped free uh, 11 orcas and 87 belugas. If your audience Google's whale jail, we we were big contributors to that. We're also wow. now focused on helping uh, free children who are being trafficked it on uh, the southern border. So my goals are financial in the sense that I need to make money because I've got a few different groups that I really want to help. Wow. Good for you. Good for you. I just want to go back to, I mean, it's a pretty incredible story, right? From working at a grocery store, what, 12 years ago, 10 years ago-ish yes. to now, you know, where you're at <clears throat> 10 million or over 10 million or somewhere around there. You know, I mean, obviously really amazing and, and incredibly fast 
But the one thing I want to go back to real quick is, is how did you flip the switch from being so frugal and saving and not spending and, and all of that to now spending more? Because it's hard, right? A lot of for I think for a lot of people and a lot of the people we interview or the listeners, it's it's kind of like that's their mindset, right? Is to save and all of a sudden, even if they have the money, how did you flip that switch? That is huge, right? I talk to so many of my own subscribers or you talk to people who are in their 60s and they've done everything right. They've got the pension, they've got social security, they got a savings, they got 401k and they cannot flip the glitch to spend. They end up living in a prison of cheapness and uh, it goes to their baby or their uh, millennial kids who are going to blow it. But Man, that is tough. I, me and my wife struggled and we call it a, her and I call it the two year lag. Our spending habits are about two years behind our income. We did not plan it that way. It's just how it's happened. So when we really started to spend money, you know, we finally got ourselves some nice cars. We've got these, you know, Escalades we've always liked and we started to buy different trips and we did, we've done crazy stuff now. We, we rented out the whole Vatican so we could see it by ourselves with just the security guard and I mean, now we've, we've blown some money here, but it took years to finally exercise that muscle. And even now we'll do it. And then we go right back into our cave. We're like a turtle comes out of its shell and then goes right back into its shell and starts saving like a crazy person again. And what we did is we called it our financial moat. And I talk about it in the book as well, but we, we, we need it financial security which is all of our basic needs paid for with passive income. Then we needed financial independence, which was in our minds, financial independence was a decent lifestyle being paid for by your passive income. And then ultimately we achieved financial freedom, which was where we had our passive income was now paying for our lifestyle plus some very serious vacations. And most importantly, we had saved enough to where that could also support us. And that was that's in my mind, man. I'm not saying anybody else should do that or think that way, but because of what happened in 2008 and because I ended up going from being wealthy to being nothing and to being, you know, living in a $95,000 house in California. Guys, I don't care what year it is, if you're living in a $95,000 house in California, you guys can imagine where I was living. Um, <laughs> okay, so because we did that and um We've always been extra, extra frugal and extra safe when it comes to anything like that. So again, we, we, we were millionaires for a bit uh, before we probably spent anything. Uh, we, were, we probably achieving net worth millionaire status and then achieving liquid, liquid millionaire status. I drove that car for years. And I'll tell you guys a beautiful story. In 2016, or excuse me, December of 2015, when that was when my wife and I finally turned to ourselves, we're like, it's time. And I got her a gift because we hadn't done gifts in about seven, eight years. And I got her a gift for every year we missed for Christmas. And it had a card with the year, you know, 2009, 2010. And it showed uh, kind of a memory of that year. And ultimately, I did get her a nice ring. And uh, it just, it, it was it was those sacrificed years that in hindsight, they flew by, and you're right. I think about it 12 years ago, but 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I probably had a, a net worth of $15,000. So it has happened fast, but it was through a very aggressive saving, very strong, a good a good focus on on business. And also, we did take some risks. We did, we did occasionally, we never risked money that mattered. 
That's important. If you're going to speculate in the stock market or speculate on something, we speculated on things that we could lose the money. It wouldn't kill us. It was you know less than 5% of liquid net worth. And then we trained our brain to not only focus on income, but capturing equity. So whether you're buying a discounted stock or a discounted business, for real estate, it's even easier because you know from the appraisals how big of a discount you're getting. So I didn't like to buy properties ever at market value. I like to focus on capturing. I wanted to walk into the deal making thirty dollars to $50,000. Yeah, it's a really good answer. Thanks. I appreciate you sharing that. And that was kind of going to be my next question. I know we're running short on time here. And the, the question is, what, what was the, I mean, you did it so quick, right? 10, 12 years to 10 million. What was it that did it? Was it being able to take those risks you just referred to? Was it hard work? Was it being frugal? Was it, was it, you know, getting lucky? That's obviously some element of it for everybody. What is there one or two things that you can pinpoint to and say, Hey, that's, that's what led to my success. You know, a high savings rate really helped because when you have a very, so we cut all of our expenses from 2009 to 2012. I mean, we live like poor people. We didn't even eat meat because it was expensive in our minds. So, I mean, we really were just doing everything we could to save money. We, we gave away our pets that had $150 a month uh, veterinarian bills every month. They were wiener dogs. We gave them away to a very nice home. I take a lot of heat for that comment. But just, I mean, I just wanted people to know we did everything we could to save money. But then we took that money and we invested it in either something that brought us income. And as that income came in and started to pay off a few bills, we then felt comfortable with this high savings rate to start making a few small speculative bets. And occasionally, some of them would have a decent return. But instead of, see if you made 50,000, let's say you invested $10,000 and you made $50,000, but then you don't spend a penny. You then take the 50 and you keep focusing on buying income. And when the opportunity comes, you invest in something that you can speculate in. But again, it was was always disciplined. I had to learn, unfortunately, that when you feel like you're in a rush, you're usually going to lose money. If you feel like you're in a rush, you're you're probably making a mistake. So, like if you if you're listening to this show right now, you're like, oh man, I'm going to speculate, and then you just force yourself to find something to speculate on tomorrow. That's just gambling. A, a good speculation is going to slap you right in the face. Um, it's like the Dow. I remember this was like two or three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago. The market went down the most it had gone down since 1987, and then I was like, well, this is a no brainer. I bought like triple long on the S&P 500 and then sold the next day because it went up. And then just just over the weekend here, um, we had a three-day holiday and I was like, the market's gone up the most since like 1938. I bought triple short the S&P 500 and then I sold it at the open and made some money. But it's, it's those things. It's like Jim Rogers, he's a billionaire. And I talked to him on the phone a few times and he told me, Dan, look, when you invest, it should be so obvious it's like you're standing in an empty room with a pallet of cash. You look around, nobody else is looking, you just move over and grab the money. And that is really when you'll know you're doing the right thing. So could you say that right now with, with where the markets are at? I mean, maybe it's not a short term, right? But can't we say in three, five, seven years, the market's going to get back to where it was or higher? Meaning, yep. should you go take some of this cash and gold that you have, right? You say about 50% and, yeah. and put it in the market? Or, or yeah, no, other it people, it, kill, it kills me that uh, that much is not performing right now, not not yielding any income. Um, so for me, the so at this stage in my life, my number one objective is preservation. Because if I just do nothing, 
I'll be fine for the rest of my life, right? So right, right, right. part of it is like I'm less focused on growth these days and more focused on just keep it locked. Just don't screw up. Uh, but yeah, no, I expect that opportunity to come. Uh, I'm hope with the next 60 to 90 days here. But here's the problem. Um, here's why we're definitely, in my opinion, 100% not there yet, where we can just go all in, start buying blue chip names and make a fortune buying the safest names in the world. First of all, all the financial bloggers in the fire movement are still pushing the ETFs and the indexes. That means no one's actually felt any real pain. They're too very, they're very confident that it's just going to go right back up. When if you look at other stock markets, even the market in the 1929 crash, it didn't break even until 1954. Uh, the NASDAQ, you know, in 2000 crash didn't break even until I want to say 2016, 2017. Uh, the Nikkei of Japan crashed in the 1991. It still isn't as high as it was in 1991. Commodities, same thing. Gold crashed in 1981. Didn't break even until the 2000s. For some reason, the, the recency bias is so strong in this last bull market that lasted 11 years. So as long as the recency bias remains amongst retail investors, in my opinion, that we, then we have definitely not bottomed. Uh, we need to see people puking and, and losing some real money here. Now, the Fed has complicated it, obviously. Huge asterisk, right? We've lost the markets here. If, there was, if the Fed wasn't involved, these things would have already gone down 85 90%, and we'd be, bought, we'd be grabbing our pallet of cash here, guys. But the Fed is involved, and they're doing everything they can to keep it propped up. So that's the only asterisk. However, I think if you look at what's happening with uh, consumer behavior, how that is going to change in the future, and how the supply line is going to change, obviously CEOs in the U.S. government is not going to have everything made in China. There's so much change coming. When you get into a situation where there, there's this much uncertainty, there's nothing wrong with just doing nothing and just waiting uh, because the opportunity will come. And so that's right now I'm kind of just – it's very uncertain out there. I do believe ultimately this will lead to a, a, an amazing prosperous boom for the U.S. Because in my opinion, China, the potential biggest competitor of the U.S., just took themselves out. Uh, there, there's no trust there. No one, there's, there is going to be no world reserve currency competing with the U.S. dollar. The renminbi will not be trusted because of what's happened here. The euro is a basket case, and it might even implode during this crisis. Hopefully not. Uh, so I think the U.S. dollar is king. It's a matter of uh, what happens in the next few months here, and are we able to bring these jobs back and these, and these manufacturing jobs back? And you know, how will different economies open? And they'll stagger when they open. Maybe we open, but you know, Japan's closed. And anyway, I just don't see a rush to buy right now. Now, if uh, financial bloggers were getting jobs uh, who were making money off of uh, telling people to buy index funds. I would probably be a I'd probably be in there buying as much as I could. <laughs> so just in closing here, Daniel, tell us a little bit about your book, Don't Say for Retirement, and, and where people can find you and, and hear more about you. The book was written in with the mindset of I wanted to give my kids something that I could pass on. And I'm so happy and thrilled to share it with people and I love the feedback from everybody. You guys, if you go to futuremoneytrends.com slash save, you can read the intro where my wife and I are in a bankruptcy attorney's office, as well as the first chapter, my own personal definition of wealth. The book includes many of the things I do and invest in, and, and it also gives you a free subscription at Future Money Trends, which continues to basically share everything we're investing in. 
Okay, awesome. Thanks again for coming on the show. That's Daniel, futuremoneytrends.com. Really great interview. Amazing, amazing story going from working at a grocery store to 10 million in 2008. So appreciate you coming on, sharing your story and And thanks for coming on the show tonight. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.